chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. I want to talk to you about Jesus saves and is the good news still good news. But let's pray before we get into the word this morning. Father, we thank you for today. Lord, I pray, Lord, over this message for those who are here today, those that are going to watch online, those that are going to listen online, Lord, that we have a deeper revelation of you. Lord, that we are moved when we hear the gospel still being preached today. God, when we read the gospel, Lord, the good news, may it still be good news to our hearts. Give us an awe of who you are, of what you've done. Again, break our hearts again, Lord, for this gospel message in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Have you ever taken somebody's punishment before. Maybe you have a brother or a sister, and you know that brother or sister did something, stole the cookies from the cookie jar, or whatever it is, and mom or dad comes in there and calls out your name, and you get the whooping of your lifetime because it was somebody, how many know have a brother or sister that just that loving? All right. All right, so yeah, you've taken the punishment, or maybe in a co-worker, Maybe your coworker didn't dot the I or cross the T's that they were supposed to or forgot something to turn in, and you took the slack, and it was you that had to end up being working late or staying extra. You all have wonderful friends that leave us sometimes in those places where we have to pick up the slack where they failed to work extra. I remember one time in, uh, in gym class in high school, like I think it was my freshman year, the boys were supposed to bring all the equipment out of the locker room. I had already been out there. I was with the coach, and we were setting some other things up, and the boys were in there supposed to change and bring all the equipment out, and they didn't. They were joking around, horsing around, so the coach just says, all right, every boy in gym class, 100 push-ups. Let's go, because y'all didn't listen. And here's innocent old me. Guess what I had to do? I had to do 100 push-ups with them. Now, don't ask me to do that again today. That was in high school. But uh, it was innocent. I was innocent, but yet at the same time, it was every boy, no matter if it was your fault or not, because he said somebody should have stepped up, and when they didn't do it, you should have done it. And so we all had to line up, and we did the push-ups, and uh, I would be honest, I did them all, and even the guys that were messing around, they couldn't even do them all. And I'm thinking, how in the world am I out here helping the coach, and you guys screw up, and I have to do push-ups with you, even though it's not my fault? You know, and that sounds kind of Christ-like, but the most Christ-like thing in that situation really is this. We talk about Jesus and what he's done for us. Is that what if I had to do the push-ups for the entire class and they got off scot-free? Now, Lord knows I could never have done a thousand push-ups in my life. Uh, but is this a revelation for us? I think about how many times I've heard the gospel preaching my life, growing up in church, and then going into college, and getting transformed by God, and going into Bible school, and, and then working in your master's degree, and then pastoring for a decade. How many times I've heard this story? And the question I have for myself, and I really want to preach to myself today, is, is the good news still good news? I think the problem sometimes we often fail to see is that this story is not yet any, it's not personal enough to us anymore. It's, it's become just a story or a once upon a time Jesus died for all mankind. And we fail to have the personal impact. And I think for this reason many in the American church today are not joyful in worship. We lack comfort when we're afflicted. 
We don't have a devotion to holy living like we ought, and we lack faith in His Word. That's because the Bible is very clear that there must be a spiritual revelation for those who hear and believe this message. I want to give you just a simple gospel message today from Isaiah 53. If you're there, uh, turn to your Bibles, Isaiah 53, verse 1. But in 2 Corinthians 5, just as we get the header for today, it says that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He who knew no sin, He took the punishment for everything that we did. And what does it mean to say the good news, the gospel? The word gospel means good news. It is the good news that God's kingdom has come to the earth, that His rule, His reign, His realm, His dominion has now come down to earth and is available for you and for me to have access into the place where God is God. And God rules and He reigns, where demons are cast out, sickness is healed, eternal life exists, where God sets what was in disorder back in order. He sets what was wrong now back into right. And you say, well, how can I believe in this good news? This good news that God is now back in charge, that God is going to win, that when God is there in the house, everything is made right. How do you believe in that good news? It's simply, how did it happen? Is that Jesus Christ, the begotten of God, because God so loved the world, Jesus came to be a substitute for your rebellion and my rebellion. That's the good news, that God has established His kingdom through making His Son a substitute for your sin and for my sin. And is the good news still good news? Is it a news that we still weep and rejoice over? Is it a, a good news that I'm still passionately serving about? Is it a, something I'm willing to sacrificially give? Is it something that still draws me into His presence? Is it something that leads me to say, I just want to know Him more and more? Is the good news still good news? And if it is for you, somebody say amen. amen. Let's take this journey together today. Can you do that? Isaiah 53 verse 1. Isaiah is speaking to an exiled people. He's speaking to a people in captivity in Babylon, speaks to them into the future, and he says, Israel, you are supposed to be God's good servant. You are supposed to be a light to the nations. You are supposed to be a, an obedient people, a kingdom of priests. You are supposed to be the people that led the nations back to God. You are supposed to be a people who established God's rule in His reign and in His minion on the earth. You are supposed to look like heaven on earth so the nations would come in and find salvation, but you disobeyed God. You turned like a sheep, and you went wandering in your own way. And so now this, this discipline has come upon you. And he says, but here's the good news. God is going to send a true servant. He's going to send someone who was uh, obedient unlike you. He was going to send someone who is going to take all the rebellion of the entire world upon himself. He's going to show the world what God's kingdom really looks like. And he's going to make a way for all the people to come and find him. He is going to be the one who now establishes God's kingdom on the earth. He's the one that's going to be a light to the nations, a city on a hill. He's going to show people who God really is. In Isaiah chapter 53 verse 1, the most powerful statement in the entire Bible about who Jesus is. It is the proof text 
that many people look at and say that 750 years in advance, this uh, prophet uh, specifically met, met so many conditions that there is not a single man in the history of the world who could have met these conditions but one man, and that was Jesus Christ. He says this, he says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of parched ground, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed ourselves stricken of him, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, and each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on Him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that's silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land for the living, for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great... He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. The very beginning of that says, and who's believed this? To whom has this been revealed? I have read this passage and read this passage and read this passage and preached this passage. And, and you have to come back to it again and again and say, do I believe this? Is it revealed to me in such a way that it is good news, that it is making me weep over Jesus and rejoice over Jesus and draw near to Jesus and give my life to Jesus and to see what great sacrifice He's done for me, that I will give Him everything freely. He who gave me everything, how can I not give Him everything? Is it still such good news that it moves us to say, yes, Lord, I'll go. Yes, Lord, that I can worship Him at any day of tragedy and trial, that I can sacrifice any amount He calls me to sacrifice because I can say, yes, because I have good news. That it's, I believe it, and the Holy Spirit has revealed it to me. Actually, in Acts chapter 8, you remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch? Acts chapter 8, there's a, a, a black man from Ethiopia who is a eunuch who works for the queen. And he's somehow made his way into Jerusalem. And somehow by divine appointment, God has given him a sacred piece of the Bible, which is unheard of, by the way, for a non-Jew to have a sacred piece of Scripture. So some divine means, someone placed this chapter in his life. And God tells Philip, he says, Philip, go down to the desert road. And God uh, enter, has this, this uh, 
had like what you would say collision of two people. And he says, he finds this Ethiopian eunuch and he's trying to read the scroll of Isaiah. And he's in this very chapter. And he, Philip jumps in the carriage with him and the man is, is curious. He's, under, he's like, what is this about? Who is this talking about? What is this passage? He doesn't understand it. And the Bible says that Philip began to preach Jesus. He began to preach Jesus to him. And in that moment, that, that Ethiopian, he believed, and the Holy Spirit had a revelation on his heart. And it says that in Acts chapter 8, that he believed it. He looked for an urgency to be baptized. They baptized him, and Philip was left. And it says that he went away rejoicing because he believed in the good news. That there's something about this news that when you believe it and you have a revelation of it, that you go away rejoicing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That it changes your life when you truly believe it and you have a revelation of it. It is not just old news. It's not just once upon a time in fairyland. It's not just a history book. It's not just some story about a religious guy. There is something that must be revealed deep inside our hearts once again in the American church to awaken us to the good news of Jesus Christ. That it's not just something that we do and some place that we go to hear a good story and a pick-me-up message and make me feel better about himself, but just to say, yes, Jesus died for me. You see, in the Old Testament, there was this thing called substitutionary atonement. It meant that if I knew that I was a sinner, that God provided a way through this sacrificial system. If I knew I had sinned, I would take a lamb or some kind of animal offering, and I would lead it to the place of slaughter, which is called the altar, a place of slaughter. And I would take it there before the high priest in front of the Lord. I would confess my sin to the high priest and to God, that I am a sinner in need of salvation. And if I don't become saved, if I do not confess this, if you do not take my sin from me, I am destined to be separated from God for all eternity. Condemned. I'm guilty. And he confessed his guilt and he laid his hands for himself and his family upon that animal. He took his knife out of his waistband and he slit its throat and the blood was on his hands, symbolically saying that this animal, this innocent life is now taking on my sin. This innocent animal is taking my place and it would appease the wrath of God for his sake. And God would transfer the guilt and the shame and the punishment due to that man onto that animal as a temporary atonement, meaning a temporary appeasement, a temporary punishment. And we know that that was only temporary. And that God had ordained from Genesis to Abraham to Noah to David to all King Saul to every prophet after that would say, there's one coming. There's someone coming. And Isaiah is the same way says, my servant, his servant is coming to take away the sins of the world. And I want to just tell you what Jesus says. Three things that he did in this passage that he empathized, he exchanged, and he endowed the first thing is that he would come as a man. He empathized as a man. He became one of us, identifying with us. He came down. He took pity on us. He experienced life with us. 
He came as one of us to lead us out of that captivity of sin and back into the presence of God. The first thing in verse 2, it says he was humble. He was uh, humbled. This one who is exalted above all nations, of all times, of all glory. He said he humbled himself even to the point of being as a man, even obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That he was humbled. He was humbled to so many in his family. He was just Joseph, the carpenter's son. This is the guy. Listen, think about it. This is the guy who all the stars know his name. And he went to the middle of nowhere. Galilee. And they said, what good can come out of a place like Nazareth? He went to the least of the least. He was born in a stable and no one even knew it. He became nothing, nothing disgraced to a Jew. He was just the carpenter's son to a Roman. He was just a dirty Jew, a dog to his own people. They rejected him. They despised him. He was despised and forsaken. He was grossly underestimated for who he was. He was hated by his own. He was persecuted, plotted against, lied about, betrayed, and forsaken by every single person who followed him. The one who legions of angels just sing his worth and his praise. Every star falls in line at his word, and he was forsaken. Verse 3 and 4 says, sorrow and grief he knew he bore. In fact, that word carried, it means bore and carried. Bore means to he lifted up our sorrows. Carried means he carried in himself. That word carried actually means to be impregnated, that he inside himself, he took it upon himself. He saw the, the huddled masses. He saw them. He wept over them. The Bible says that when he went, he looked and he moved with compassion over all the hurting lepers and the rejected prostitutes and the tax collectors collectors, people who had been shut off from society, the unclean. He was moved with compassion over them. Dirty, guilty people. He was moved with compassion. And he embodied their grief. He took in their sickness and their suffering. He began to minister to these masses. One at a time, he began to touch them. The unclean. Think of it. The one who no one can touch. The one who no one can get close to. Even the angels cannot cease to cover their eyes and their, their faces because of his glory. That no one can get close to God. And he would get close to us. Put on flesh and he would touch the dirtiest places of this world. He bore our sickness and our suffering. It says he was stricken, he was smitten, he was afflicted, he was pierced, he was crushed, he was chastened, he was scourged. More than the physical suffering, it, and it says it wasn't for our rebellion, his rebellion, but it was for ours. He was beaten to a pulp, spat on, slapped, his beard was plucked, his bones were popped out of joint, his face was so disfigured, he was mocked with thorns and put on a purple robe, led through the streets by a screaming crowd, and he was stripped and he was nailed to an old rugged tree, covered in his own blood. And here's the thing, the Bible says that he did not even open his mouth to defend himself. He was beaten and beaten, and he never accused. He never condemned. This is the guy who in one moment could call 12,000, 12 legions of angels, legions of angels to come and loose him from those bonds. This is the guy that didn't even need 12 legions of angels. He didn't even need one legion. He could say just to the storm, calm, peace be still. He could say to a fig tree, be dead. 
he could speak, I am that I am, and the people who arrested him fell flat as if dead men. He did not utter one word on that cross. Actually, he did. Forgive. 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 Father, forgive. Over and over and over. says he was anguished in his soul. That word soul there means to his entire person. He was anguished to his emotional level, his physical level, his mental level. You see, he took it all on for every person who's been humiliated, every person who's been despised, every person who's been rejected, every person who's been beaten, every person who's suffered in your emotional turmoil. He took all of it on himself as a man, empathizing with you. And Philippians 2 says, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In that moment, the father in himself was broken. And a lamb, the man became a lamb. He empathized as a man, but he exchanged you and I as a lamb. As a lamb, while the world exchanged the truth for a lie, he exchanged his righteousness for our sin. Just as God had provided Abraham's lamb in Genesis, now God provided the lamb. John said, Behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He became the lamb that was slain from the beginning of time, the one who God had ordained from the beginning of time that you would die for the sake of all, all those rebellious people. He became that guilt offering. In that moment, just as that man would normally transmit his sin to that, God began to transmit our sin to his own son, his own begotten one, of himself, on his word. He put our sin on his holy word. That same word, that logos, that spoke life into existence, that breathed breath into man. He divorced his own self from his own self. He amputated himself from himself. It was in that moment of divine exchange that said, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, for Christ became the curse for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. It was not nails that hung him to a cross. It was our crime. It was our offense. It was our rebellion that pierced him. He was crushed for our iniquities. Iniquities means the guilt and the punishment and shame that follows sin. It was for the shame and suffering he took it on. And in one moment, can you imagine, the entire world's sin was transmitted upon him. Every dirty thought, every evil deed, from Adam to Revelation, all at one moment, every thought, every feeling, every action, every murder, every rape, every ounce of jealousy, every ounce of slander and gossip, every ounce of pride and lust, all the dirtiest things of man fell upon him at one moment. How broad his shoulders must have been. And he was the only one worthy to take it because he was the only one holy enough to handle it. The weight of sin must have been enormous. Peter says, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, there was a moment on that cross where he began to be subject to separation. He says, Father, why have you forsaken me? 
In that moment, God Himself turned away from His Son. It even says that the earth began to shake and the sky grew dark because God was divorcing Himself from Himself. I don't understand it. I don't even begin to comprehend how it happened. I just know it's amazing that the entire world in that one moment didn't fall apart as God who spoke the world into existence separated Him own self from His own Word. He divorced Himself from His own Son. He amputated His own arm. He began to turn away from His own self this divine intimacy. And this morning the Lord revealed to me there was a moment in, in John chapter 11 where Jesus comes to Lazarus and He sees the family and it says the shortest verse in Scripture what? Jesus wept. I've always been told and begin to preach that why did Jesus weep? As a man, yes, he had compassion on, on his family, on this family that he was so near to Mary and Martha and Lazarus, his best friends, and he wept for them, and that's probably true. But here's what I believe now. I believe that Jesus saw something. He saw a separation. He saw that, he, that Lazarus, even though he knew, think about it, he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why would he weep over a person he was about to raise from the dead? I don't think he was weeping over Lazarus. I think he was weeping over himself because he was, a, he was seeing something. He saw a separation between Lazarus and his loved ones. And he knew just in a few days' time, just in a week and a half, I'm going to be separated from my father for the first time. He says about this divine intimacy... And John 17, Father, I've been with you from the beginning. Your glory has been my glory. And I want them to know what unity we have, that they'd be one with us as we are one. And he knew on that day he raised Lazarus, he said, I'm going to experience this. I'm going to experience death. I'm going to be separated from my own father for the first time. The one who said, let us make man in our image from the beginning of creation before the eons of time. He had always been one with his father. He had never spent one moment of time separated from him. In fact, he got up early to pray just to be in intimacy with his father. Every day he walked with his father. He did what his father did. He only do what my father tells me to do. I've only come to speak what my father speaks. I'm even doing this that I want to do. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. It's for you because I love you. The intimacy we have is one. And he said, and Jesus, he wept because he would be subject to separation. I believe that's an illustration that on that cross, God began to weep for his son. He began to weep for his son. He empathized with us as a man. He exchanged for us as a lamb. And thank the Lord, He endowed gifts on us as a king. Acts 5.31 says, He is the one from whom God exalted to His right hand as Prince and Savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. On the third day, somebody say, He rose again. He rose again. I, he says in John, He says, I am the living one. Philippians says that He became the one whose name is above all names. 
As a man, he empathized. As a lamb, he exchanged. And as a king, he endowed gifts. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that he healed us by his very slashes upon his back. He justified us, meaning he proved us innocent in the high courts of heaven by his blood. He reconsecrated us to God. God demonstrated his own love towards us. Romans says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than now if we've been justified by his blood shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him we are healed we are justified by his gifts he says he raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places that in Christ that he rendered the devil powerless Hebrews says releasing us from the fear of death and Romans says while the rages of sin was death the free gift of God became eternal life in Christ Jesus. First Corinthians says that the sting of death was sin and the power of sin was the law, but thanks be to God, we have victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He healed us, He justified us, He raised us, He made us. The Bible says we've now become through Him heirs of faith with Abraham's children. We are now children of Abraham by faith in Him. We are the ones who are the blessed nations of the world. We are the people who have the identity that we were once not a people, but now we are the people of God. That we are now the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We are His inheritance. We are the gloried ones. We are the saints, the beloved, because of Jesus Christ. Heirs, Titus says, according to the hope of eternal life. We have a promise. We have a hope. And he gave us many gifts when he rose over the dead. Ephesians says that he gave gifts to men when he led captivity captive. The very thought of death was made captive. The very thought of hell was made captive. That Satan is destined to be thrown into the pit in the lake of fire. And Hades and hell will follow with him. Because our God rose victorious over the grave. And he justified the many. And Romans 11.29 says this. 11.29 says this. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What Jesus has done cannot be undone. What Jesus has given to you and to me through his own self cannot be ungiven. What he has said cannot be unsaid. He empathized as a man, he exchanged as a lamb, and he endowed as a king. How do you and I respond to such news? Is it old news or good news? Do you have a revelation of it? Do you believe it to the depths of your soul? Has it affected change in your life? Do you still weep over the story of the cross? Do you still rejoice in the victory over the grave? Do you still want to give your all to Jesus? Surrender everything I have to give. Freely give it. Do you still have a passion to give your life to the mission and the calling of God? Do you still proclaim to people along the street, there is good news? Because it must read this way for you and for me. It was my griefs he bore. It was my sorrows he carried. It was... Pierced for my transgressions, 
He was crushed for my iniquities, and the chastening for my well-being fell upon him. You see, Jesus was my substitute. And if I understand that and believe it, and if the Holy Spirit will reveal it more and more to me, you see, I can be comforted then in affliction. I can be joyful every morning. I can be excited for all that He's done and all that He's going to do. I just want you to be on a journey with me today and just to say, Lord, this is my prayer this whole week, this whole month, this morning. Lord, make it real again. God, make it good news again. Lord, give me the joy of my salvation. David said that I might teach sinners your ways. God, restore to me that joy. God, I repent. I confess my need upon you. Holy Spirit, this will just be another story unless the Holy Spirit reveals it to you, that it's good news. Many people the last 2,000 years have heard this, and a remnant has been affected by it. Those to whom God has revealed it. He says, who has believed our report? And to whom has the Lord revealed? I'm praying for revelation. I'm praying, Lord, God, move my heart again. Break my heart, Lord, for what you've done for me. God, give me a greater love for you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning as our team and our ushers come. We're going to take communion together. And ask the Lord to make the good news good news. Ask the Lord to bring revelation, to break our heart, to give us a shout of rejoicing, to give us comfort in affliction, to give us a willingness to serve, a, a, a want to, to be holy for this king, for this lamb, for this man. Say, God, I want to serve you. I, wanna, I want this to be so real that in Heath Harris's life, that Heath Harris doesn't want to willingly sin any longer. That I wouldn't be so moved by the good news that I'll just say no to the devil. That I'll just say no to temptation. That I'll say no to sin. That I'll, I'll every day can rejoice in what my Jesus has done for me. I want to pray over you and then they're going to give you an opportunity to take communion together. That's not just something you're going to do today. It's a, something you have to ask for. But I'm going to be honest. God has so touched me just this weekend, this this morning, really, before service in my office, that if you ask Him to make it real for you, He will. He will. He wants you to know. So, Lord, I pray today over every person here that we get a revelation of this good news, that it becomes the simple gospel again would so move us that we could declare it with joy. We'd be holy. We'd be comforted because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, would you do that for us this morning? Would you, I'll let the ushers go as they sing this song, Draw Me Near. Yes, God.